Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, dumpster, galloping wit, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show! Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy, guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Duvall Nation, hey there, how's it been? Hey there, hi there, hello there, you're as welcome as can be. Welcome, and thank you for that applause. I am Derek, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. I cannot believe it's been two weeks already. Man, did that go fast. We are now nearing fall, which for quite a few of you out there is music to your ears, cool attempts, fall foliage, and pumpkin spice everything is the order of the day. Well, it's coming, folks. Just a few more weeks. It's been brought to my attention this past weekend that we have now broken into the country of Brazil, so to my Brazilian friends, I say this. Bem-vindos amigose, obrigado por Karim so thankful para over more show. Hope you all understand that. I did the best I could. Lots to talk about, but before we get into the episode, I want to address the element in the room. So for those with even a passing knowledge of world events, the United States pulled out of Afghanistan, and within a week, the entire country fell to the Taliban. Now, in the last week and change, I've had many, many, many loving and thoughtful text messages, phone calls, chats, private messages asking about my mental well-being with this, seeing as I am a 9-11 sea-deployed combat veteran that was awarded you know, many high medals for defeating the Taliban and crippling Al-Qaeda. Seeing the horrific images of our Afghan allies desperately trying to get out of the country and some even, God, falling off of planes, that's horrible has driven a very large knife into my heart and has left me and thousands of veterans asking the same question. We lost the war. Was it even worth it? We lost 2,248 brave men and women in this war, 20,722 more wounded and maimed, and countless more that lost their battle at home, the unseen war in their head. Was it worth it? I saw General Mark Milley make a point that we have not had an attack in America since 9-11. If that's a victory, sure, all right, we'll take it. But I've lost friends since then. My brother, uh, he fought in Korangal. He lost friends, and I can just keep going on and on and on. It is my prayer and deepest hopes that those who aided the United States and NATO allies and were promised a life in the United States or elsewhere are evacuated and given what they were promised. And to any of my veteran brothers and sisters listening, and I know you were out there because I've talked to several of you in the past. If you're feeling down and just need to talk this out with someone, talk it through the mess, 
call the Veterans Crisis Line, 1-800-273-8255. There is no goddamn shame in talking this out. And take some time away from the 24-7 news cycle. Believe me, I got sucked into it. It's easy to get lost in it. So just take a break, okay? Okay, on to episode 23. 23. Lots of great athletes emulate that number because of one man. Hashtag dream guest. So, episode 23, we have on this show trauma and vascular surgeon Dr. Mauricio Halbron. He's here to discuss his experiences on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. And he's also just a hell of an interesting guy. Uh, definitely one of the most uh, fun interviews I've had in a long time. Just a completely different interview that I thought we were going to have. And I actually it was one of the most pleasurable interviews I've ever had. So I hope you guys enjoy this. So let's not stand on ceremony. Devol Nation, please welcome to the show, direct from Long Beach, California, Dr. Mauricio Halebron, or as he likes to be called, Dr. Mo. <laughs> Dr. Mo, welcome to the show. How has your day been so far? It's going fine. I'm trying to find people to cut open, if you know what I mean, but it's getting kind of hard. I like to start at the beginning, and that is, uh, where did you grow up, and at what age did you decide to pursue a career in medicine? So I am the firstborn in America, a child of two parents. My parents are from uh, Columbia, South America. So yeah, I was born right here in Long Beach, California, and that's where I've been today, or what's where I am today. Becoming a doctor, it's one of those things where when you know, I was a little kid, I, you know, dad was a doctor, so I said, I want to be like my dad. And then as I got a little older, like in elementary school, when uh, kids would ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or specifically, older people would ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? People would say like astronaut or baseball player. And I kept saying doctor because it had that same sort of allure to me. Mm-hmm. And then through my grade school years, it ended up that, you know, I'm, I keep joking and telling people I'm as smart as I am now, but I was this smart in fourth grade. So I was like unbelievably smart in fourth grade, but I just plateaued early. But when you're that smart back in the 70s and you want to be a, you know, what do you want to do? Everybody says, well, you know, you're going to be a doctor. So I said, all right, that's that's sort of fitting. But then as the years went on in college, I became a resident assistant in the dorms where I got to take care of people and take care of the younger students on the floor. And I realized this was sort of kind of what I was good at. And uh, I was lucky enough to get into med school. 172 years later, here I am. <laughs> there, that, which brings me to the next question and is uh, what do you remember best from your time at Crichton University School of Medicine um, so it, it's interesting that I'm a city boy with roots from the jungle and I end up going to medical school in the Arctic tundra of Omaha, Nebraska so it was um, a culture shock for me but it was one of the best things for me it, it got me out of my shell people are a lot nicer in Nebraska than they are in Los Angeles <laughs> Um uh, they don't look at you funny when you talk to each other in the elevator. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I also DJed my way through med school. So really? I actually, yeah, I played, I did a lot of parties. I had the largest record collection. Plus I, I sort of knew my music so I could sync things up. I liked to get people dancing. And so that's how I paid for my uh, music habit going through med school. What kind of music were you uh, playing there? <laughs> well, it was interesting because country music used to make me itch. So I would refuse to play country music. But in uh, between 87 and 91, still having my contacts in California, it was interesting bringing stuff like salt and pepper and Prince and stuff that was normally not played in Omaha. But uh, my interests vary for all sorts of popular music. But back then, 87 to 91, you're looking at what can you get people on the dance floor with? And that tended to be Michael Jackson, Prince, 
the the end of the new wave era, the beginning of uh, hip hop and stuff. So anything to get people dancing. That's Actually, funny. after midnight, you you kind of when people are that drunk, you kind of have to go back to the four on the floor stuff like Wooly Bully and Louie Louie and all the old <laughs> frat rock songs because that's just about enough for them to handle. You know, it's funny. Um, well, about uh, twelve. 15 years now here in Tulsa, we never had a, um, a concert venue of any kind that would bring a, you know, a, a list act through, you get the smaller acts, you get your casino mm-hmm. act. But anyway, they built the BOK center and everybody's like, all right, finally, we're going to get some really great musicians come here. We're going to get, you know, we're going to get Prince. We're going to get Madonna. We're going to get what have you. Anyway, all we ever ended up getting was either really, 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 really super old people or country music mm-hmm. at this time. And a lot of us would look at each other like, is this what we, is this what we paid? Is this what we signed up for? And finally, they started listening. They started bringing, you know, actual, you know, rock and roll bands. And we had Paul McCartney come through. And uh, it, it, it finally, I think in my way, it's kind of paid for itself finally. So. Oh, good. Yeah. That McCartney, I saw the McCartney tour about 10 or 15 years back. That was tremendous. I've seen him um, four times and he's amazing every time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm one of those pathologic people. I've seen Springsteen 15 times. Nice. I'm a Sting fan club member, so I've seen him like 12 times, including with the police. <laughs> uh, Elton John, Billy Joel. Um, are you familiar with the English Beat? Yes. So they're amongst my favorite, and Dave Wakeling has now sort of become a friend of mine. Oh, wow. So Yeah, so anytime I get it, I can't wait for live music to come back. You mentioned um, Sting. I went to a book signing. This is back when Borders was was around. It's not there anymore, obviously. And um, I got to meet him. He signed his autobiography. Yeah, the Broken Music book. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, I, I've got. I already got to meet Andy Summers in uh, uh, college, and he signed his book of photographs for me. But uh, yeah, Sting's one of those people that I grew up with. I mean, in college, the Police were like my Beatles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I, every time I've seen him, he's never failed to just impress me and, and entertain me and. Uh, I had tickets to his Vegas residency, but COVID nuked that. So hopefully right. I'll be able to go back uh, next year. I am a live music snob. And one of my things, obviously, I, I just love to see pe- bands. Because as I'm getting older, the, the music that I grew up with, the people who I look up to, they're starting to, I'm horribly say, but die off at a rather accelerated rate lately. Oh. Um, so I'm um, getting a chance. I actually... To this day, uh, seeing the police on their reunited tour. Oh, I can't remember what it was. 2009, I think yep. it was. And was the most expensive ticket I've ever bought in my life. And it was not even, <laughs> it was not even for good seats. I, I mean, we sat way up in the nosebleeds, and I paid $600, $600 for it. But you know what? I got to see the police, the original lineup. So, money, you know, you can't put a price. What's 600 notes, right? Oh, I, I still it's, – it's absolutely hilarious you said that because same for me. I keep joking that um, when the police played at Dodger Stadium, I was in the second row, and I'm still paying off those goddamn tickets because <laughs> um, they were just. But it, I got to go with my best friend, mm-hmm. and my best friend is who went with me back in 1982 or 81 when I first saw the police. So it was this tremendous sort of step back in time, and it was an out of body experience. And as a side note. I did uh, local radio here in Los Angeles a bunch. There's a local radio station called K-Rock. Mm-hmm. And there's a morning show called Kevin and Bean that I would show up as Dr. Mo and talk about health-related stuff from time to time. Sometimes sort of funny and ribald like things people put up certain orifices. And other times like serious stuff like strokes and uh, medical things that are in the news. Well, anyway, one of the famous alumni from that TV show is Jimmy Kimmel. Ah. He used to be their sports guy. And I'm sitting in the second row at Dodger Stadium watching the police, and who's sitting behind me but Jimmy Kimmel? <laughs> and so I I knew because I'm 
with the show and because I'm a doctor and because I know things, I know that he had had his appendix taken out three days before. So as we're walking out after the show, and we're doing that whole cattle call walking thing off the field, out the exits. I'm next to Jimmy Kimmel. And I, you know, I say hi. And I told him that he looks great. And I heard he had his appendix out. And he's been glad he could make the show. And he thanked me for my words. And then I sort of dropped the whole thing like, you know, I'm kind of on that radio show used to be on. Well, he put his arm around me and started talking to me like I was somebody like he had known forever. And the <laughs> best part about it was everybody staring at me trying to figure out who, which famous person I was. <laughs> it was great all right so you had your residency at maricopa medical center and a fellowship at harbor ucla you currently serve as vice chief of staff at saint mary medical center in long beach california what obstacles did you have to overcome to get to where you are today oh my goodness so big obstacles in getting to be a doctor that aren't readily apparent to people unless you know, and even because they get most of their medical information from Gray's anatomy and er and and that sort of stuff is that you don't. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I do because now I have to pay attention because my patients ask me about it. Oh, Lord. Um, but it, it, it's really hard to get through residency. I mean, they joke about it on TV, but I was working about 100 to 120 hours a week for five years straight. And, and it's merciless. Now, it prepares you for because when you get on the real world, it's you're kind of able to do anything. I mean, people say, God, can you operate with your eyes closed? I was like, yeah. I mean, and you kind of want a doctor that's been through it, that, that nothing really is that big of a deal. So it's really, really difficult. Just it's mentally and physically and psychologically taxing to get through a residency. Mm. Fellowship is when you want to do something a little extra. And so you have to reapply and you have to take extra years of research and training to do certain specialties like vascular surgery, which is what I did, but you can do colorectal surgery or you can, you can do any, a number of other specialties. Mm -hmm. So the main challenge in that is simply grasping and collating and dealing with information. It's the training. And you know what they don't teach you? How to pay your bills, <laughs> how to collect the money, how to actually run an office. And you have to learn that on the fly. Mm. And it's, that's a biblical disaster. And I've talked for years on, is there any way you could prepare residents to, to, to come out in the real world and know this stuff better? And the honest answer is there's simply no time. There's, you don't have time in your residency to learn about coding and billing and, and that's and business stuff. When you're trying to figure out how to keep people alive, how to take out an appendix, how to connect arteries and veins and all that fun stuff. So, once you get out, that's a, this huge challenge. I was actually fortunate enough to join my father in his practice. So I, it, for me, it was a bit more gentle. In the United States, many people are becoming employed physicians um, where they're, they're simply part of a corporate group. And that's sort of one of my things we can talk about some other time. But I think that's not exactly the best thing for patients in the United States right now. I'm a dinosaur. I'm a solo practice, general trauma and vascular surgeon. And there's hardly anybody out here like me. It's a struggle. It's just me and my secretary. But I feel that's the best possible care a patient can get. They never talk to a voicemail. They always talk to a person. They always talk to me. I, I'm old school, but I, and I'm kind of poor. But I think it's the best thing for the patient. My patients are all like, they know this is a little different. I'm a vascular surgeon, not cardiovascular. Okay. So the cardiovasculars, you know, those are the ones who treat the heart patients. But all because I do a lot of dialysis, mm. I get a lot of heart patients. Because I have to do a lot of amputations and bypasses, I get a lot of heart patients. So 
one of the things about treating heart, and sometimes I have to treat people that get stabbed in the heart and stuff, but that's because when I'm on trauma call. Heart patients are, they're kind of the, one of the sickest of the bunch, heart patients and dialysis patients. And the hardest thing for a surgeon is just <laughs> keeping them alive while you're doing all the stuff you have to do to them. Which brings you to the next question. Obviously, you know, being a surgeon, I can imagine being very complicated. How do you mentally prepare to perform a dangerous or complicated surgery? <laughs> well, it's complicated, but if my toilet breaks, I can't fix it. So <laughs> we each have our thing. So, and I hear that when people say it's really complicated, but when you do something for 20 years, it becomes less complicated. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of preparing yourself, residency does a great job. Residency keeps throwing things at you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So by the time you're done, you can kind of handle most anything. Nowadays, the complicated part is actually getting it done. The hard part isn't operating on people. I love that. That's where I feel the most calm. In fact, if there's somebody's shot and they're bleeding all over the place and there's blood on the ceiling and everybody's yelling and screaming and running around and trying to get blood transfused and getting the right instrument, I'm usually the calmest I am ever. In the middle of the room, I just quietly tell people what to do. I have my fingers on whatever's bleeding and I'm stopping the bleeding. That I dig that. That is like... I feel like I'm actually useful. Mm. My most stressful stuff is when I have to beg for authorizations for an x-ray or I, I get, you know, I get denied payment because I said I didn't get prior authorization for a gunshot wound, which I'm not sure how you do that sort of thing. <laughs> That's the, I mean, honestly, my happy place is when I'm in an operating room and I know when I'm done, people are going to be better. Do you have a story about one of your most uh, successful procedures? I was about to say, yeah, I have a bunch of stories, but psychologically, you tend to remember all the bad ones, and it's kind of hard to remember the good ones, but mm. I do, and one of the things that reminds me is has been Facebook. It's one of the good things Facebook is for, because uh, I, I, every once in a while, I treat young patients on trauma call, and you know, they can tend to be some of the most disturbing ones, because they have the most promise and the most hope, and you know, it's different when you see an 80-year-old who's in a car accident versus a 20-year-old. It just is. They get treated the same, but just emotionally, there's a little different. And I remember we had a case out here where it was a Jane Doe who was jogging near one of the local universities and just got slammed by a hit-and-run driver. Oh, wow. And she came in just this barely alive bag of bones. And we, me and the orthopedic surgeons and, I mean, every, all hands on deck, every especially in the hospital, was involved in keeping this girl alive, except for she had no ID. Mm. And we couldn't find out who she was. And all we could think of is like, there's, there's family looking for her. There's mom and dad. There's, well, we don't know. And we, since it was near school, I thought that maybe she could have been a student. It certainly made sense. So I did something that is technically illegal, but I went to the school website. I contacted the school and on the school's social media, I put has anybody not shown up to class that normally shows up to class? Does anybody, it, did anything feel suspicious? And within 48 hours, we got a name, we got her, and we got her parents in. And fortunately, they forgot that I did all that stuff. But she survived, and she, we became, she found me years later on Facebook, and now she's in the Midwest. She just passed her physical therapy licensing, and she's working as a physical therapist, taking care of people just like her. That's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. That's yeah, I, I love that stuff. That's those are the little things that keep you going. Okay, Duval Nation, we are gonna go ahead and take a tiny break that gives you a chance to refresh the drink, take a nice few deep breaths, you know, Cluzo style. 
We are going to go ahead and give a big shout out to two very deserving friends of the show. Don't worry, we'll be right back in a few minutes. Hi, I'm Dietrich. I'm Alex. And I'm Ben. We're from the podcast That Song From That Movie, the journey through the very best and worst of movie songs. We want you to join us on our voyage across the cinematic sound waves as we take a deep dive on a new song and movie each week to figure out just what makes them tick. Already we've set sail with Celine Dion on the Titanic, found a friend in Toy Story, and gotten drenched out in the rain with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Hopefully each breakdown allows us to answer the ultimate question of what's better, the movie or the song. Or at least learn something new along the way. Just like learning that Toy Story 4 is a meaningless cash grab without a soul. You can subscribe right now on all good podcast platforms. If you use one of the bad ones, then that's on you, and we can't be held responsible. Subscribe to that song from that movie. Support for the Derek Duvall Show is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision engineering tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, folks, the 4.0. Join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer just for you 20% off, free worldwide shipping with the code Duval37 at manscaped.com. Men, imagine shaving with the sleek, well designed, and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. Drawing on their patented engineering, this fourth-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce those potentially lethal grooming accents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. And of course, if you're into making patents, you can now customize your trim through additional guard lengths with sizes 1 through 4. Hey, in a pinch and can't find the light? The Lawnmower 4.0 gives you the ability to turn on the 4000K LED spotlight to give you just the same light as our orbiting star. Did we mention wireless charging? If it's good enough for your cell phone, then it's good enough for the Razer. This new wireless charging system uses electromagnetic induction, which can help battery length last longer. Not even Q-Branch for the Bond films can come up with something like that. Need a testimonial? Here's a random British person. Watcher, mate. I always lose my Jerry Coddle giving the old undercarriage a dig in the grave. Now, with the lawnmower 4.0, I can raise a smile while watching the footy with the Forsyth Saga and a Ruby Murray, or that while the Duchess of Fife has a butcher's at Manscaped's handiwork, till hopefully both of us are cream cracker by morning. I'm not done that time, mate. You can trust me, I'm British. Thank you, random British person. If it's spoken by the British, it just feels more authentic. So you heard it here. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code DUVAL37 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use DUVAL37. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the right job with Manscaped. What's going on, everyone? This is your girl, Julene, host of It Goes Down in the PM. We talk about everything from work, motherhood, local celebrities to comic books tune in every friday at wine o'clock to find out what really goes down in the pm duval nation welcome back to our interview with the great dr mo i hope you got to stretch and you feel just a little bit better all right, let's jump right back into it with the conclusion of our interview with Dr. Mauricio Hellebron. 
because you brought it up earlier, you mentioned Grey's Anatomy. How hard is it as a doctor to combat Dr. Google? <laughs> oh, my. That's uh, it's kind of the bane of my existence because everybody, especially now with COVID, everybody knows more than I do. Everybody has that little phone in their pocket and they tell me what I'm supposed to know. And this drives me nuts when you watch television, when you see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of commercial that all end with tell your doctor about. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. This is not how it works. I mean, with all due respect, I'm supposed to tell you what is right. I'm the guy who's learned. You can ask me. I know about it already, but we can talk about it. But this constant questioning and doubt and and distrust that's been fostered by a number of things, whether it's Dr. Google, social media, our political environment, whatever, has been it's just demoralizing. Um, so many physicians I know are just exhausted with all this stuff. Now, Dr. Google is pretty interesting because I know how to fight back. What I do, excuse me, what I do with some of my older patients is they don't understand how search engines work. And so often I tell them to type something into their phone and I type it into my phone. And when the Google results end up different, they finally realize that this isn't like looking something up in a dictionary. Mm-hmm. And, I, and then I have to take five minutes and explain that whatever comes up is based on what they've looked before, not on what, is, what you're actually looking for. It's, it's a bias that you don't even realize. And people tend to click on bad things more than good things. So if I fix a hernia and 99.98% of the time hernias come out fine, they're going to come in asking about lawsuits about infected and recalled mesh, which... I haven't used that mesh in 20 years, mm-hmm. if ever. So combating Dr. Google is difficult. You have to be sensitive to it. You have to be aware of it. Um, COVID was about as close as I ever got at just losing my S with it because mm-hmm. um, it, it started to get toxic. But I think, hopefully, I, my patients know because I spend too much time with them, that the, the Dr. Google thing is a tool. And I always tell them, I don't mind them looking up stuff. I just want them to go over with me afterwards. And I can give them some context and perspective, maybe point them in the right direction. That'll actually help them as opposed to cause more conflict. So I uh, asked some fans, I I told the social media that you were coming on uh, Twitter and so forth, that you're coming on the show. And I asked some fans to submit some questions. And I went through all the questions. And the one I liked the most was this one. And it was about high blood pressure. And I hope you don't mind if I ask it. Sure. Uh, what do you think is the best medicine and course of action to curb high blood pressure as you get older? <laughs> okay. Super complicated question. And I need to caveat this by saying I'm just a surgeon. Fair enough. So there are people out there that are way smarter about this. Hypertension is not a one size fits all thing. And one drug is not better than the other because one patient is not better than the other. Um, And this is where having a primary care doctor listen to you is super important. And most people take more time picking their car than they do their doctor. (laughs) So that's why I urge people when they don't like their primary care doctor, demand more of them or find another one. Because to get to me, you need a good primary care doctor. Um, If you have high blood pressure, is it due to... Uh, the most common one is they call it essential hypertension, but basically it's like, we don't have any clue why you have it. You just have it. So take a pill and some pills work better than others, but there are other reasons that people do get high blood pressure. Some of them are kidney related. 
Some of them are anatomically related. Some of them are, and my undergraduate degree is in psychobiology, so some of it is actually psychological. Our brain can be the most powerful drug in our body. So the the treatment for hypertension is multifactorial, and a good, um, caring, thoughtful physician will be able to ask you the right questions and then do the right tests. There'll be some simple blood tests, maybe a chest X-ray, EKG. It depends how old you are. If you're a 20-something with high blood pressure, that's a much bigger deal than if you're 77 and they notice that every time you come to a doctor's office, your blood pressure bumps up a little bit. So that, it, it, that's, it's a great question. It's, it's super important, but there is no simple answer for it. Fair enough. With the pandemic starting to be somewhat curtailed, please tell us about your experiences working on the front lines with uh, COVID-19 and the crisis. So my frontline experience comes from being in the physician leadership of the hospital as I'm the vice chief of staff, I'm vice chief of surgery, I'm vice chief of trauma. I, I'm, I'm one of those people that I don't believe you can bitch and moan unless you actually participate. So I get way too involved. And from a management and logistic point of view, this winter was one of my worst, most difficult experiences ever. It's when the pandemic started ramping up. And here in California, we were able to really get through the first bump with few scars. Um, we were very quick to shut down surgery. I was one of the first surgeons in all of California to uh, stop doing elective surgeries. So much so that the hospital came after me and said, no, 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 you need to keep doing it. We need the money. And then five days later, they were like, yeah, never mind. You're okay. <laughs> From that, some from our business administrative level, the management of it, making sure the hospital was empty, clearing out non-essential patients, and then trying to ramp up the PPE as the winter surge hit, where our nurses were just being um, overworked, the administration wasn't listening to them. The whole mood in the hospital was one of um, like an action movie, where like people are just doing what it takes to get to the next day. It was it was this tense, dramatic eternally long time period. Well, it got much worse as for me as a vascular surgeon, because then I was being called to hook people up to dialysis. Mm. There is a way where if your kidneys shut down, I can find a big vein in your groin and at the bedside, numb up the skin and just put this pencil sized giant IV in your vein there that has two heads on it. And so they can suck the blood out and clean it, put them back in. And that's if your kidneys fail. And I do a couple of those a year. I mean, I do some variations of it fairly frequently, but for the sickest of the sick patients, a couple of times a year, I get called to do that. I was in the hospital 80 consecutive days. Wow. There was one stretch where I did like 27 of these lines in 15 days um, at 24 hours a day. I'd be, call, you know, because the kidneys would shut down at three in the morning. And it, when you're in the ICU and your blood is so thin, you're bleeding out of your eyeballs. So nobody wants to stick them. They sort of call me because I'm the combination trauma surgeon, vascular surgeon. He's the guy that can do it. So I got exceedingly good at making sure I only stick somebody once with a really large needle in really big blood vessels <laughs> and just hoping they don't bleed to death. Right. It was, it was emotionally grueling in that we never heard the overhead code blue announcement as frequently as we did from November to February. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was every 15 to 20 minutes, this code thing was going off. Um, we, we had 
our entire intensive care unit, which was uh, 50 beds, quickly filled up to capacity with only COVID patients. We bumped it up to 70 by squeezing in patients in every nook and cranny. And then all the other people, like the heart patients that were sick and the trauma patients that were sick, all these people that still needed ICU care, we were putting them in operating rooms. We were putting them in the preoperative recovery rooms. Any place where we could hook up a ventilator, we were hooking people up. It was, I've never seen anything like this before in my life. We have some residents, medicine residents at our hospital, and they were positively heroic because um, they didn't sign up for this. Right. And, you know, the, the, having to wear these spacesuits and you, it's walking into these units, these uh, closed spaces where there's eight individual beds. Each one has its own separate room. Um, uh, they, they encircle a small central desk and you walk into this one room, close the door behind you. And you're everybody's wearing these like spacesuit like things and masks and hats and, and gowns. And then. I'm walking around holding giant needles and giant tubes. Um, people's lungs would collapse because their lungs would just get destroyed and ravaged by COVID that we couldn't squeeze enough oxygen into them. So you'd cramp, crank up the ventilator to force more air and you'd pop their lungs. It was just, it was a nightmare for just three months. Man, the vaccine, I think five, 10, 15 years from now when the dust settles and we look at this with a, a calm eye, that that vaccine thing really, really made the big difference here in America. I think someone I know put it in real good perspective for me recently is, you know, if we could put a man on the moon, we can cure and we could cure smallpox and polio because it was it, was, it, sh it shows you how far we come as a species that we can bang out a, a vaccine in less than a year. Um, definitely is a testament to science, education and where we are, you know, in evolution as a planet. Oh, 100%. And even if in our lifetime, when AIDS was a new disease oh, that had a 100% mortality rate, and in one generation, not only did we diagnose it, but we were able to treat it and turn it into what's almost a chronic disease now. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, with COVID, because it's a different sort of infectious disease, we had some heads up. We had some other knowledge about coronaviruses and these sort of infections, but the 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 development and the implementation and getting it into people's arms was really exemplary. the The problem now is, and I say this with a heavy heart and trying not to sigh too heavily, is that we have a large proportion of stupid people that aren't playing nice in the sign the box. Mm -hmm. And I'm and I'm not the only one who's really worried about what's been happening the last couple of weeks. Delta? Um, Delta. And it, it is the Delta variant, but whenever, since COVID has started, we tend to, to name things and lionize things and attribute things. And it, it sort of gives them a different character, like um, hydroxychloroquine became a thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, PPE became a phrase. And there, all these things become, and so Delta implies this like, this this evil thing waiting outside the door. Mm -hmm. The more important thing isn't the Delta, it's the variant. The fact that there is a variant, we know there's tons of variants and that there's going to be one after Delta and there's going to be one after that. Mm -hmm. the, what we're noticing now is there is this new variant that that is, it, this sounds dumb, but it's normal. 
This is how viruses work. They mutate and we get variants all day long. The flu has all sorts of variants. Every year we get a different one and it's slightly different. Mm -hmm. the, the problem here is you only get variants when the virus mutates. And for the virus to mutate, it has to replicate. And it's those random changes that cause mutations. Now, if you mutate into something that is less bad, then it doesn't get transmitted. And it tends to, quote, die, unquote, in its host. It doesn't spread. But if you happen to have a virus that mutates into something that is more easily transmissible, that's the one that is going to get evolutionarily bred out and spread more. That's just the way science works. So when you combine the fact that this only happens in, vac in unvaccinated people, getting that number of unvaccinated people down as low as possible will slow down the mutation and quit and allow Delta variant and the next variant and any variations to come to be of lesser severity, not, not greater severity. So yes, it's, it, my concern is that in LA County, uh, four weeks ago, it was at 5%. And two weeks ago, it's suddenly 14.5%. Mm. Um, and I hear in other parts of the country, it's approaching 50%, which makes it technically the most common variant, which is mind-blowing that it's happening that quickly in the unvaccinated population. That's the problem we're having at where we live. Um, I live in Oklahoma, and I, I hate to say it, but we're not exactly the most forward-thinking state in the, in the, in the Commonwealth, and uh, our Right now, obviously, our, hospital, our hospitalizations are low, but we hear the vaccinated folk are far outnumbered by the unvaccinated folk. That's so, such a dangerous situation. Just doing the yes. math, that's a yes. dangerous situation. But um, I, I, what I hope happens is that before it gets too bad, trends will be identified and people will wake up. And at least we're trying to keep tabs on it out here in California. And I think the medical community in general across the country, once they notice increases in hospitalization rates, they will, they will act accordingly. The one thing I noticed, and I read this in a newspaper recently, was that uh, this year, but we just passed through the, this last winter, uh, was the lowest recorded number of flu uh, cases. because In the grape? And, hand washing masks and um and so forth social distancing it was uh, it's one of those things it kind of was like a, a the little blurb in under a big headline but i thought it was uh, very interesting I, I couldn't have been the only one but i actually mentioned that a year ago saying that all this masking and social distancing is going to affect other infectious diseases and i'm wondering how it was going to affect it and you're absolutely right it's not just because we didn't check for flu we actually had less cases of flu mm -hmm. Um, and that's because we did the right thing. Now, once we get back out there, doing the right thing is getting your flu shot. And I honestly used to be against the flu shot. Why? Because every time I got a flu shot, I got sick. Mm -hmm. And so, and I know that's bogus because you can't get sick from a flu shot. And I know that's how, there's no way that what you get injected with can make you sick. It can make you feel bad as your immune system responds to it. But one time I got shingles right after mm. for the third time. And I'm, so I'm like done. So I refused to get the flu shot until an infectious disease guy sat down with me and explained to me in really technical terms why this was bogus. And then he said something that made a lot of sense. And he said, listen, Mo, you work harder than anybody I know. 
you don't take any days off, you can't afford to, you've only been on two vacations in 20 years, your immune system's giving you a big middle finger, and we give you a flu shot, and while your immune system is busy working up and generating stuff to help you with the flu, something else is looking around the corner and wipes your, you know, just destroys you. Mm-hmm. And son of a gun, if that wasn't true. And so every year after that, I've made sure I take my flu shot when I know I'm doing really well, and I haven't had a single problem in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, so flu shots, and swing, that's my personal anecdote, but getting back to flu shots, whenever you have a population where more people get the flu shot, that year and the next year, it's less severe. Mm. And this shows how the severity of the flu follows the amount of people that are unvaccinated. And I, I don't know how many people got their flu shot this year. So that's why it's going to be really interesting seeing what happens once we get back out to the normal, quote, I put that in quotes, mm-hmm. see what happens next winter. Mm. Um, I'm sort of curious about other infectious diseases like sexually transmitted diseases or other things. I, I want to know what the numbers are going to be a, a year or two from now because the masking and the distancing and all that stuff really really affects infectious disease in ways that we've never seen in our lifetime. So I'm just curious to see what those numbers are going to be. So that brings me to the next question. Um, what does the future look like for you? Do you have anything special in the works? Do you have any big plans? Um, I got married right before COVID hit. And I would really like to go on a honeymoon. So that's kind of, I'm so lucky to be honeymooning and quarantining at the same time. So that's all golden. Um, I do have some, I'm I'm supposed to take over as chief of staff in January. That's when my thing happens, but there's some, some big stuff happening here in the the local area. Um, There are a few of us physicians that are actually fighting corporate medicine as they're trying to take over and make medical decisions on patients. And the people doing that don't have degrees. So there's a number of physicians who are trying to stand up and kind of fight against that. And we're losing because they're really big corporations that are really scary that have really large numbers of lawyers. There was a but, movie There was a movie I saw that has a quote, but it's kind of committed to memory. And it was, uh, it was that movie about uh, the AIDS crisis. And it was about how they were trying to uh, convince the Red Cross to test for the virus in their blood supply and they all were vehemently against it for, for financial reasons. And the doctor says, he goes, when doctors become businessmen, who can people turn to for doctors? Yes, exactly right. Mm-hmm. Businessmen do not take the oath of first do no harm. You know, I, I, and I always tell people when medical decision-making is based on shareholders interests and not patients interests, patients are going to suffer. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of what I'm doing. I, I there's a lot of stuff I want to do. Uh, I, I want to write a book. Um, I want to make sure my son starts off college well because he just graduated and COVID has really decimated his last two years of high school. And I was so proud of him and his school. They did this smart. They went to a hybrid learning. They kept tabs of their COVID numbers. They were able to scrape together a really fun prom and then they were able to graduate in person wearing masks, being safe, but they were able to do it. And and get some sort of semblance of normalcy back to their high school years. Um, and so I'm hoping that that continues and they'll be able to kind of be more social and more more human and, mm-hmm. and less detached. I, our kids need that. They need to be closer together. This has been great. So that's sort of my goal. I'm, I'm too optimistic. I'm going to go see Hamilton is what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you listened to my episode today because that was a it was a gentleman who um, he worked at Hamilton. That was who my uh, episode was released today. What? 
Yeah. He was, he wrote a book about, uh, he was the bartender at the theater where Hamilton started. And of course, to, to today where, you know, let's say it was running now. And he was talking about, you know, um, working with Lin-Manuel Miranda and the cast and meeting Barack Obama and other celebrities. It's a great book. I highly recommend you. Oh, sweet. I'm going to go back and check this all out because I'm a bookaholic amongst other things. I love Broadway shows. I'm actually the medical director for one of the big charities at San Diego Comic-Con. I'm like a comic book nerd. I used to go to Comic-Con when I was living out in California. Ah, where'd you live in California? San Diego. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I... I, I've been going there since the seventies as a kid, my parents used to take me and now I help with the charity that helps all the old creators who never got paid for their work back in the fifties and sixties, seventies, and sort of help them out with their medical stuff oh, wow. now that they're older. Yeah. It's super cool. I, it's like my chance to give back um, to all these people that mean the world to me that maybe nobody else knows about. So that's awesome. I like that. Very, yeah. very, no, very noble. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's what we're supposed to do. So I finished my interviews with my absolute favorite question, and that question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the entire people of Earth? Be kind. I I miss that. I miss kindness being a good thing. Okay, Dr. Mo, thank you ever so much for taking the time to speak with me today. This has actually been quite a lot of fun. Hey, happy to help. If you ever, hey, if you ever think about me, I'm always here. Thank you. Thank you. Duval Nation, just like that, another episode of the Derek Duval Show comes to an end. Can you believe it? It was so much fun. It just flew by incredibly fast. I want to thank Dr. Mauricio Hallebron for taking the time to come on the Derek Duval Show, and I am hoping we might be able to check back in with him at a later date. We have got some incredibly fun and exciting stuff coming up in the next few weeks. Some of it I wish I could tell you about, but I have folks telling me to keep a few surprises in the bag. I'm sure you understand. As always, the power of the Derek Duvall Show comes from you, the listener, and your ability to spread the show via word of mouth. If you know someone who would be an ideal guest, go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, and let us know so we can take a look and see what we can do. Well, on that note, I say to you, planet Earth, Please wear the damn mask and get the vaccine. It's getting scary out there again, and Delta is not discriminating at this point. If you have doubts about the vaccine, arm yourself with facts via the CDC website. Nosta, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.